love, authoritarianism, and breaking down space. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. Lots going on uh, in the very near future. I'll be at the Liminal Conference in Ventura, California with Pete Enns. I'll be all over the state of Texas with Gunger, and there's more events coming up after that. So there's more chances to see me probably than there's ever been. But for now, we've got a show to do, so let's get it started. science mike love the show love what you do i uh, just figured i'd ask you a more lighthearted question um my wife's always asking me to scratch her back and her arms and etc uh and i was curious why it feels so much better when somebody else scratches your back versus when you scratch your own back or your own arm or you know whatever uh what's going on psychologically neurologically that sort of thing uh again love what you do thank you so much looking forward to your answer <laughs> This is definitely a more lighthearted question. <laughs> it's also really tough, believe it or not. When uh, I saw this one make it to the poll, I was a little nervous. I thought, okay, maybe maybe the patrons on Patreon are not going to vote for it. And of course, they overwhelmingly did. <laughs> so let's start with the obvious. Most people like to be touched. Most people like to be touched. Now, some people have touch aversion based on physical disorders that create that. You can have trauma that creates that. But most human beings like to be touched by other people. We are social mammals. We are the most social of all the primates and among the most social of all mammals. And so evolution has homed in us an affinity for contact with others. We get separation anxiety when we're alone. If you remember last week's question, talking about why humans love dogs and dogs love humans, it's because we're both species that enjoy the company of other members of our species to the point of enjoying physical contact. When people touch people, there is a hormone called oxytocin that gets released that makes us feel pair-bonded, makes us feel cuddly, and that's not just in the context of romance. Anytime someone touches you and it's not in a stressful or fearful or threatening context, uh, you have that production of oxytocin and you have the formation of a bond between two individuals. Now, the West has become remarkably touch-averse. I think that's part of why our culture is very sexualized is because we've created such a stigma around touching now, some of that's that's good and that's necessary. Uh, historically, uh, male to female touch has often been associated with uh, domination and uh, patriarchy to kind of bring out my inner feminist. But by and large, we're actually seeing an increase in depression and anxiety and uh, even an increased propensity towards violence based on the amount of or the lower amount of touch, the touch starvation that happens in Western culture. Uh, so that's kind of the evolutionary impetus. Now, in the brain, this isn't isn't perfectly understood. I think it may be related to uh, the reason you can't tickle yourself. So when someone else tickles you, you laugh. It's related to probably uh, a reaction we have to creepy crawlies. 
right? That should be that's a weird feeling when a bug's on your skin, and bugs some some bugs bite, so we have a reaction to that, and tickling kind of feels like that. Um, but it's an unexpected touch. You can't not expect your own touch because your brain is mapping your motor cortex is mapping where your hand is, and so you can't tickle yourself. But someone else can probably tickle you if you're ticklish. And that's probably related to why it feels better when someone else gives you a massage, when someone else strokes your skin or whatever, or scratches your back, because it has that unexpected notion that you've associated with contact with others. Now, it goes two ways. Not only do we like to be touched, we like to touch people. People generally report that another person's skin feels soft when they touch someone, and They'll usually say that it feels softer than their own skin, even if by objective measures, the opposite is true. We tend to find touching other people to be pleasant or pleasurable, and again, not necessarily in a sexual context. Uh, so we have this, this need to be touched, and grooming, scratching, all these things are very primate, very ape rituals for bonding, for creating peaceful exchanges and evolution has primed us to enjoy those things. Now, I wish I could give you like a, here's exactly in the brain. I can't, I don't see it in the sciences. And I actually took probably 25 minutes and read a few papers on this. And uh, it's, it's just not super well understood in the sciences. But what is understood is that humans are social primates. We're apes who live in societies and love to touch and be touched. Our next question came in from email, and it's a doozy. Hey, Science Mike, I just watched a TEDx talk about 11 dimensions and quantized space. It both intrigued me and blew my mind. In fact, it probably broke my brain. In any case, as much as I found it fascinating, I'm also not totally sure I grasp it. What do you know about the theory of quantized space? Can you explain it in a way that does justice to the theory, but is simple enough for a lay person to understand? I'm sure that's a tall order, but I'm confident you can do it. And what's amazing is in this week's poll, this was another question I didn't want to answer. In fact, all four questions this week were the four I was hoping wouldn't make it on the show because <laughs> I've... I've just been, you know, it's been a busy week. I'm only home for a week before I'm on the road again. And uh, I'm having to record two episodes because I'm headed to Israel. And I don't know if I had a month to prepare, I could do a good job on this question in five to seven minutes. I might be able to do this in a special edition 30-minute episode like I did with gravitational waves. Um, but I don't know. Here's the reason extra-dimensional space is confusing and non-intuitive, and our brains don't really have a way to visualize it. So doing math in additional spatial dimensions is relatively easy, but picturing extra spatial dimensions is basically impossible. And this is especially true because there isn't a defined theory about extra dimensions or quantized space. This is a, a hypothetical framework in physics. They don't all agree. And in fact, in the show notes on AskScienceMike.com, 
you can have a look at both the TEDx Boulder talk by Thad Roberts that our the original question is about, and you can also see uh, a piece from Brian Greene where he talks about string theory, and they carry different assumptions or at least different metaphors for describing extra-dimensional space. But regardless, let's see if we can explain this. So you've probably heard that quantum particles uh, like photons or electrons are something called a wave function and that there's something called Heisenberg's uncertainty principle that tells us that we can't know both the position and the velocity of a particle at the same time, that the more we know about one, the less we know about the other. And you may have even heard that quantum particles can teleport from point A to point B without traversing the distance in between them. And that's weird. You've probably also heard, if you follow my work at all, that the standard model of physics, the quantum model of physics, doesn't incorporate gravity. It ignores gravity. And when you combine it with Einstein's theory of relativity, you get answers that don't make sense. And so as theoretical physicists have worked for ways to integrate what we understand about the quantum world with what we understand about the macro universe through relativity, one of the things they've used is extraspatial dimensions. So one of the earliest attempts was simply adding an additional, a fourth spatial dimension. And when you do that, you can actually integrate uh, relativity and quantum dynamics. Uh, you just can't have electrons. So <laughs> um, as we built models, uh, effectively string theory created this need uh, for additional spatial dimensions. And where are they? Well, the, the three dimensions we're used to that are spatial are planar. They're flat. They extend in all directions. But we imagine that dimensions could be curled back on themselves, and we already can visualize what a curled dimension would look like. The surface of the Earth is a two-dimensional plane which is curled into a ball. So if you go far enough in any direction, you come back to where you started because it's no longer a flat plane, but a spherical plane. So when we talk about 11-dimensional space-time, all those additional dimensions we're imagining are wrapped up in these tiny, tiny little structures of nine-dimensional space. <laughs> and if that doesn't make sense to you, great. It doesn't make sense to anybody. <laughs> There's no one can visualize this. Stephen Hawking, Lawrence Krauss, Brian Greene, they can talk to you about it. They can offer metaphors. They can certainly propose elegant mathematical models, but no one can visualize what it's like to have seven, eight, or nine dimensions curled in upon themselves in space-time. But what we can imagine is the effects of that. It starts to solve some of the problems we see with a, this fuzzy, probabilistic nature of quantum dynamics, and it makes the universe deterministic again. Now, in this process, we get to something called Planck length and Planck area. That's the smallest divisible unit of space. And this comes from mathematical models. And it's the idea that uh, you can't break space apart any farther than that. That below that, the structure of space time, as we understand it, doesn't mean anything. And um, we actually have a little bit of you know plausible tests to... 
establish this. And it's because black holes, black holes are maximum entropy objects. And we would expect that their entropy would increase uh, along with their volume, but they don't. The entry of a black hole only increases with its surface area, which is what makes us understand or believe that space has a smallest divisible unit. Just imagine you're looking at a sheet of paper. It's graph paper, okay? And each square is a plank length. You don't have to worry about the size of a plank length. Just imagine that you literally couldn't cut the paper any smaller than those squares. And that would be a two-dimensional plane that was flat. So if you kept extending that sheet of paper, it'd go on forever. There'd be squares forever. And now if you can imagine, you know, uh, crinkling up little balls of paper and setting them on the lines of those squares on each of the four corners, and that those are additional dimensions. So um, if you were small enough, you know, if you're very, very small, you could actually walk into one of those balls of paper and all across its balled up surface, okay? And that would be additional dimensions on top of this plane. Now that's only <laughs> mapping a two-dimensional surface balled up onto a two-dimensional surface. Uh, and what we're talking about is multi-dimensional balls of space-time inside a three-dimensional plane. Uh, but we can't visualize that. We can't imagine a four-dimensional plane. We're gone. We're done. But that's the best I can do in the amount of time I have to answer the question. So here's what I'm going to do. On AskScienceMike.com, I'll have a few links to you. Uh, you can check out Black Hole Thermodynamics if you want to do some reading. You can learn more about the Planck length as well as see TED Talks from two different people who will talk to you a little bit about higher dimensional space. If you really want to dig deep, uh, Brian Greene's The Elegant Universe is a great place to go or The Fabric of the Cosmos, also by Brian Greene. Uh, we'll talk about these topics in depth, but it will not be an easy read. Most of the resources I recommend are something I think will be accessible to everyone. These are books you're going to have to sit and study and ponder and contemplate and consult other resources to understand. If you care about extra-dimensional space, that's really the only way to do it. Hey, Mike. You've mentioned before that the biggest problem with religion is authoritarianism. So my question is, how does having power over another affect the brain, specifically your ability to react according to your normal moral standards? Okay, well, there's there's two things to look at here that aren't uh, directly related. Uh, one is the role power plays in modifying human thoughts, feelings, and behavior. And there's been a lot of studies on that. One thing we find is when people are elevated into higher positions of power, uh, they tend to be better at delaying rewards. So they're, they're, they're more likely to... Um, go for a bigger reward later than an immediate reward now because they feel more secure. Uh, it has an effect almost like an antidepressant. It can help uh, it can help people feel less down. It can help people have a greater sense of well-being and purpose to have power over other people. Those are positive effects. Uh, on the other hand, positions of power tend to in studies reduce the empathy people have towards people they have power over. They're, they literally are less responsive to those people's emotions, less empathetic, 
and even in, in pain studies where they see someone who appears to be in pain, their brain doesn't have the same response of emulating that pain as they do when they don't have power over a person. So power uh, is emotionally distancing and reduces empathy in most people. These are these are measurable and significant effects. Uh, and when we don't have empathy, that of course affects our behavior, our ethical considerations. We start to slowly view people as commodities. And I, I don't know, you know, I, I did my stint in management in the corporate world, and I hated it. I think I was actually too empathetic a manager to be effective. I don't like to manage other people. I really like being Science Mike, where I talk to you guys at events, and we do a podcast, and you send in questions, and we talk. And we're all just together, and people bring me in for events, and I hang out with them, and they're good people. Uh, but they're not in charge of me, and I'm not in charge of them. We're just kind of partnering in the world. And that suits my temperament a lot better than managing people. Ooh, I hate it. And for those of you who listen to the liturgists, probably the biggest problem the liturgists face is that neither Michael or I have any interest in managing people. Just zero. <laughs> uh, because of these effects that power has on human psychology, and I find them I find them abhorrent. Now, other people are great managers. They're able to either be effective amidst those effects or they're able to counteract them intentionally. Those people make great managers and great leaders. But when you take people who are psychologically unstable in some way, like a narcissist, for example, and you put them in a position of power, when you've already got someone with a low empathy and you lower their empathy further, those can create truly toxic conditions for people in an organization. Now, authoritarianism is a little distinct. Um, authoritarianism is almost a bottom-up philosophy. It's people who are eager to have strong leadership for whom uh, status quo is important, for whom predictable social norms are important. Uh, that's closely linked to religious fundamentalism. And here, there's a ton of terrible, terrible scientific work that's been done Earlier in this decade and in the previous decade, there were a lot of studies that basically said that conservative people were authoritarian and they had extreme amygdala response compared to other people, whereas liberal or non-authoritarian people tended to have a lot of activity in their anterior cingulate cortex. And the methodology of those studies in peer review just got destroyed. <laughs> so if you hear someone citing that research, uh, it's it's just not true that all conservatives are more amygdala activated and all liberals are more compassionate or empathetic. It's it's bad science. It's just bad science. Uh, however, there have been a few studies I've seen that are interesting and enlightening about authoritarianism and the brain. We're all handed. Most of us are handed. We're left-handed or right-handed. Some people are ambidextrous. And the uh, propensity you have to use the wrong hand or your non-dominant hand for tasks appears to be correlated with your authoritarian tendencies. So people who always use their dominant hand for everything are more likely to be authoritarian than people who frequently use their non-dominant hand for activities. What predictive power does that have? It's certainly not causal. It's just a correlation. I just thought it was interesting. Uh, more enlightening was a study uh, that I read that will be linked on the show notes at AskScienceMike.com. 
that showed that people who have damage to their ventromedial prefrontal cortex are more likely to be manipulated by authoritarian leadership cues or to be religious fundamentalists. And so the ventromedial prefrontal cortex in the brain plays a role in helping people resist or feed out authoritarian control structures, systems, and influences. So that's that's a decent study that appears to have done better in peer review uh, than the ones I saw before that. Uh, but basically, power is something we have to wield carefully as human beings. It does have a tendency to bring out our darker impulses. And uh, the idea that power corrupts is one that I think uh, stands on solid scientific footing. And it's essential if you're going to be a manager or a leader of any kind that you have a high degree of emotional self-awareness, of uh, emotional health, and that you intentionally humanize and are aware of how your actions affect those that you have power over. This last question has mature content in it, and so if you're one of my listeners who enjoys this show with your children, I wanted to give you a heads up and a moment to pause the show before I proceed with the question. Dear Science Mike, I am a teenage girl with a big problem. I am in love. Now, being in love isn't the problem. It's wonderful. But I am a very scientifically minded person. And having these really strong emotions running through my head is kind of frightening sometimes. So, being the person I am, I tried to reassure myself with research. I looked up articles online to see if I am crazy for feeling this strongly for a guy at 17. What I found just made it worse. Every single Christian article I read practically made a mockery of love. They harped on falling in love with Jesus so you won't be heartbroken when he leaves you, or sex is bad. And I realize that all relationships don't last forever. And I realize that I should refrain from sex before marriage so I can reach my full potential. But surely there is more to love than that. I thought the religion whose main core value is love would be more supportive of relationships. Is that all there is to a solid relationship? No sex and preparation for heartbreak? Am I naive and childish to be in love? Thanks, Casey M. Well, Casey, first of all, it's totally normal to be 17 and feel deeply in love. Uh, your, your brain is just this incredible soup of energy. Um, and I, first of all, I'd say enjoy it. I mean, I know there's an intensity to young love that can be unsettling, um, Gosh, if I look back to when I was 17, 18, 19, and the way I processed love and relationships, <laughs> some of those weren't weren't my finest moments. But at the same time, the kind of intensity of feeling that you're having now, your brain will not always be able to pull that off. As you get older, the saturation, the hue, the intensity of those feelings starts to dial down considerably. And I'm I'm pushing 40. And uh, <laughs> my feelings are just a lot more mellow these days, which it has its pluses. But what I'm saying is just take a moment to enjoy being young. So first of all, just hit pause and just celebrate your capacity to have such intense feelings. It's not crazy. It's normal. 
So let's let's step outside of like the Christian bubble for a second and think scientifically. If you eliminate culture, you are at a child-bearing age, and so are uh, boys your age. And biology, evolution has primed you in your teens to have very intense bonding experiences, to be extremely preoccupied with sex, because the information payload you carry in your cells, your DNA, really wants to make additional copies of itself. Now, want, of course, is anthropomorphizing a molecule, but that's how evolution works. It's normal for a teenager to not only fall in love, but want to have sex with a partner. It's just it's just as normal as can be. It's not dirty. It's not shameful. It's not weird. It's how your body has been engineered. Sex is not bad or shameful or dirty. And frankly, a lot of the teachings about sex, not only in Christianity, but in America, come from a property view of women. Uh, the, the, the value of being a virgin is linked to women being understood as property. And so as a feminist, I kind of stand in opposition to those things. Also, sex is a part of a relationship, but it's not all of it uh, by any means. It's a good part of a relationship, uh, but sex is a force amplifier. So there are two narratives I am troubled by. One is this uh, Christian, this religious notion that sex is dirty or shameful. I think that causes harm for people. But I think a modern progressive approach to sexuality has its own drawbacks Total sexual liberation might be interesting philosophically, but does not actually appear to be that beneficial biologically or emotionally. We're seeing drawbacks to hookup culture in the data. We're seeing an uptick in rates of sexually transmitted infections, and we are seeing uh, an increase in people reporting dissatisfaction, despondency, or despair related to high degrees of promiscuity. Humans actually are designed to pair bond. We we do well in a one-on-one monogamous relationship. Now, I'm not the kind of person who's going to say everyone has to be monogamous. I I generally don't make any sort of uh, behavioral demands on other people as long as behaviors don't affect others. But I would say there is some wisdom in what the church teaches about sex. Sex is an emotional and physical force multiplier and should be treated carefully. It should absolutely be handled with care. Now, it's, it's you're 17 years old, so you're still a minor. Uh, so I would defer to your parents on your sexual behaviors, <laughs> honestly. But once once you're an adult, you have these choices you have to make about how you're going to approach sex. And I would say sex is not bad, but should be treated carefully. Uh, In my own life, I have found the most joy, the most contentment, the most peace, the most happiness in wholly devoting uh, my romantic love and sexual energy to one person. I've never in my life been as happy as I have since I, I got married to my wife. 
And it's been 15 years. It's been 15 wonderful years. And not only am I emotionally fulfilled by that union, uh, but I don't, there's just no chance for germs to get into my body through sex. Because (laughs) when you have sex, you have to lower these immunodefense systems. You have to let foreign DNA into your body. Uh, That's how sex happens. That's how more people get made. And there's a whole class of pathogens that specialize in that stuff. And the, the fact is, even even with a condom, it is possible for some sexually transmitted infections to make it from person to person with nothing but skin contact. Uh, and, of course, there's the emotional bonding that happens in sex. And it's a complicating factor in relationships. So I would say that your zeal for love is beautiful and admirable that it's a great thing to be head over heels, and it's also a good thing to be intentional and even cautious with sexual decisions. And you're right. There's a, I share with you your concern about Christian media and its shaming of sexual behavior. We've got to fix that. Um, but I don't know necessarily that the answer is to go to a completely open sexual ethos on a personal level. Again, on a societal level, I think people should make their own decisions about what's right and wrong. But what I'm sharing with you as a friend uh, is that in my experience, a selective pair-based sexual ethic really does produce healthy relationships and produce personal satisfaction over time. Uh, I hope that was helpful. If you have any additional questions or things you want to ask. This would be a great conversation to have with your folks if you have a healthy relationship with them, for sure. I know that uh, if you were my daughter, I would would love to have this conversation with you. So, uh, you know, this show is about open, safe conversations, and I'm always happy to answer any question. Uh, but I'm also just like a random dude on the internet, and uh, hopefully there are people in your actual life who you feel comfortable having these conversations with as well. Well, there's another episode of Ask Science Mike in the books, and I do want to tell you about a few events coming up. April 8th, I'll be in Ventura, California for the Liminal Conference. Uh, It's me and Pete Enns doing a three-day event. Uh, We'll talk on Friday and Saturday, and then uh, the church's pastor will talk on Sunday about the boundaries between science and faith and mystery and mission. Really looking forward to that event. And then uh, April 14th through 17th, I'll be hitting Dallas, San Antonio, Waco, and Houston in Texas with Gunger on the One Wild Life Tour. April 20th and 21st, I'll be in St. Paul, Minnesota at First Covenant Church and Woodland Hills Community Church. And then April 23rd, I'll be in Cascade Church in Portland. You can get more information about all those by going to AskScienceMike.com and clicking on the Events tab along with all the other events I have coming up. There are more added every week. The show is powered by your questions. There's no show if there's no questions. So keep sending them in. AskScienceMike.com. You can put in a text question. You can record a question and leave a voicemail. And that's how those questions get on the show. You can also use the hashtag AskScienceMike on Twitter. Uh, It's also helpful if you go to iTunes and rate the show. That's how we show up in the rankings in in addition to all your downloads. And I want to thank the patrons on Patreon for making the show possible financially and for picking the questions. I want to thank Andrew Golucky for picking the questions on the show and doing all the pre-production work. Uh, Greg Nordine, 
handles the show's sound design and production. He does an amazing job. And Jeb Botterford recorded and wrote the theme song. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I'll see you next week. Ah!